My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors in the life of our church. This is the time in our worship service where we sit under the preaching of the Word. We take a long time to greet each other because we've got 25 or 30 kids downstairs being discipled and loved on and gospeled at this time. Thank you for everyone in here who is in that rotation of loving our little ones and serving them every sixth week. None of this happens without you serving in that way. Um, and thanks to you introverts for being able to chit-chat or hide during that extra few minutes. We're giving parents to come and get up here. Um, so before we preach, if I'm a little incoherent, or if I just take a nap on this bench right here in about 15 minutes, that's because we had two seven-mile road weddings the last two nights, and I was, was doing the speaking and the marrying at both of those. They were such a delight. Chris and Christine, who worship here with us in Melrose, were married on Friday night. Simon and Christine, who worship with Seven Mile Road in Malden, were married on Saturday night. I know it's such a heavy world that we live in and so much chances to steal your joy, especially around the realities of marriage in our generation. It was so glorious just to see uh, couples coming together before God with the church around them to believe the gospel, to be covenanted, to kick some Motown music and have a good time dancing and eating multiple pieces of cake. Chris, they brought out sliders and french fries at the end of the night. I was like, this is a wedding right here. So I'm going to pray for them and pray for you, and then we'll press into the word together. Father, I pray for these these days of honeymoon, Um, and I know that marriage is so difficult because it's the collision of sinners. And this year, Chris and Christine and Simon and Christine will have incredible highs and really difficult lows. I pray that the grace of your son would fill those places, high and low, that you would bind their hearts in love, that they would see their marriage as the display of the covenant-keeping, never-stopping love of God for his people. And thanks that even in the battle that we are in against the flesh and the world and the devil, there are times when, as a family, we can come together and just have a great time celebrating your grace and your wisdom and your will for us. So we don't miss the good gifts that you give and give and give and give and give. And I pray that you would multiply the gift of marriage in the life of the churches that we are and that we're planting. Uh, Would you also visit us now as we press into your word, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. In his wisdom and in his grace, the triune God has chosen to reveal himself to us uh, in nature. Nature shouts about the glory of God. In the person and the work of his son, Jesus, in the incarnation, we got to see what God is like. And he also has revealed himself to us through words, through words. We say it like this, God has spoken by his spirit through the words of men. And those words have been recognized for what they are, divine words, and gathered up in what we call the canon of scripture. And that's why we always preach to you from the Bible, try to put the verses up here. There's life and truth because there's the revelation of God's will in words that he has spoken. 
Now, there's a million really cool things about the doctrine of Scripture, and one of them is all the different ways that words, God's words, can be put together in language to be helpful to us. So you can take words and you can put together a proverb. You know what a proverb is? Proverb is words strung together in a very pithy, quick, declarative statement. Some of you have some Yoda in you, some Zen in you. You love words becoming proverbs. Love the book of James. Love the book of Proverbs. Helpful to you. Or we can take words and we can put them together in arguments, and the Spirit has done that. Long, linear, logical, rational progression. Some of you are like philosophers. You got some Plato and some Aristotle in you. You like thick books. You love when the Spirit puts words into arguments. It's helpful to you. You love the book of Romans and Corinthians and the the cases that some of the prophets bring through, rational argument. Words can be put into poetry. Anybody into poetry? Some of you like Dante. I tried reading that thing. I just get lost by the third circle of hell, and I'm like, I don't get poetry. Just say it, man. Some of you like hip-hop and rap. You like lyricalness. You love the book of Psalms. You love the Song of Solomon. So all these ways that words can come together, I want you to fall in love with the words and the word of God. One of the ways we come across in Scripture today that the Spirit puts words together for you is, and you might not have thought of this, is as lists. Lists. What's a list? A list is a coherent and organized, bullet-pointed way of using words. Do we have any list people in the house? I've seen your refrigerator. I know. If you came and seen my type A journal, it's just list after list after list. Here's all the things that's wrong with me. Here's all the things I want to do this year. Here's all the books I need to read. List, 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 list. If that's you, you're going to love today's text because in it, Jesus' apostle Paul presses with us not one but two different lists. One is vices and one is virtues. And in the content of these lists and the, uh, the, the juxtaposition of these two lists, seeing them side by side, we're going to learn some very important things about the gospel life, what it should not look like and what it should look like. So that's what we're going to do together today. All right, let me just make sure we know where we're at. We're preaching through the biblical book of Galatians, all letter long, Jesus' apostle writing to a church has been hammering on the doctrine of grace. You and I are made right with God, justified, adopted, once and for all, not through the good enough works that we do, not through the good enough life that we cobble together, but simply by grace. In love, Jesus has done for us everything that was required for our redemption. You participate in that reality, the victory of Jesus over sin for you by believing the gospel. It's just faith. That's all we bring to the table. When you believe, you are united to Christ and all of his benefits 
collide on your head in a beautiful moment of glory. Now, in this section of the letter, Paul is reminding us that when that happens in our souls, we are born again by the Spirit, we don't get propelled into a life where we now sin like crazy because we've got a free ticket to heaven and our sins don't matter anymore. We're justified. He says, no, the gospel of grace propels you like a rocket ship into a holy life, a holy life where you now strive every day to become who you are in Christ. That means that the gospel life is not a life of sin, but it is a life of struggle. The flesh, our sinful nature remains, and it rages against the spirit that's been given to us. And so, like Leonidas from the 300, like Maximus from Gladiator, like William Wallace from Braveheart, like Rocky Balboa from Rocky 1, 2, 3, and 4, because Rocky 5 never happened, we battle every day, invited into that fight. Okay, now in love for the Galatians, what Paul does now is he compiles two lists, and he gives them some concrete examples of what it looks like to kind of figure out whether it is flesh or it is spirit that is at work in a life, and we're going to see at work in a, in a community. Jesus is making us a family. What does it look like for the Spirit to be at work in our family? He goes bad list first. You know, you want the good news or the bad news? Give me the bad news first. Hang on to the good news. Bad news first, and he bookends the list with two important statements. First thing he says is this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, Jesus taught us this principle. Whatever is on the inside of you is going to show up on the outside of you. It would always become visible. Who you are in here, in your heart, inevitably manifests itself out here with your words and the life that you live. If it is your flesh that is behind the wheel of the car, of your life, everybody watching you drive is going to know it. Okay, illustration. The other day, Grace's dad, Giuseppe Minicapilli, we love this guy. He's almost 80 years old, and he's still driving. He picked up Matt and Brandon and I on the way to Julia's recital at the Roosevelt School, That drive now ranks in the top five of the most terrifying experiences of my life. It became evident very quickly that an almost 80-year-old was driving this car. So here's my list just to set you up for this. Number one, no use of the rearview mirror at all. It was like we were in our driveway and he was like, I'm coming back and I'm old. Here we go. I survived this long. Let's see if you can do it too. Number two, no use of the blinker, left or right. Just, come on, man, I'm just wandering here. Number three, get as physically close as possible as you can to the car in front of you before employing the brakes. You know those drivers? My fingers were like a tenth of an inch into the dashboard. Number four, ignore all stop signs. 
About a month ago, if you heard a shriek of horror at the stop sign on Tremont and Melrose Street over here, that was me because we blew straight through that. And if you know that intersection, people coming this way would not see you coming. I could keep the list going. What is that? Evidences of who was driving. Paul says same thing here. This is what it looks like when we just let our sinful nature get behind the wheel. And then he ends the list, this book ends here, with these words. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, those who do such things in here is not those who sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent. That's not what this is. It's not those who are struggling by the power of the Spirit to overcome their sin. Those who do such things means those who make a practice of or those who happily give themselves to or those who intentionally, unflinchingly, stubbornly say, forget God, forget His holiness, forget His word, forget His law, This is who I am, and this is what I want to do. Don't miss the difference in there. This list is not supposed to undermine the Christian confidence of the Galatians or anybody in here this morning. It's supposed to strike at any semblance of Christian complacency. All right, let me give an illustration here because this is a crucial difference that will be so helpful for you to get. When I was in college and I was struggling with a lot of sin, including the sin of, of pornography, use of pornography, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know who to talk with about it. So I went and I talked with the chaplain. And I did it in the third person. You know how you do that? Can we talk? Because I got this friend who's really struggling with this sin in his life. And I walked him through the situation. And I will never, never forget what he said to me. He paused and he looked at me and he said, are you sure he's really a Christian? Because Christians don't sin like that. Devastated me. And I walked out unsure, you know, for a minute. Does this mean I might not even be a Christian? That was terrible counsel. Terrible counsel. I would not have been in that conversation if I wasn't a Christian if I didn't want really bad to be holy, if I had given myself over to that sin, I would not have desperately been trying to find some handles to get a hold of to not drown in it. See the difference? That is not what the list is that we're going to see. This is not if you ever sin like this or if you continue to sin like this, even though you're fighting against it, you're going to miss the kingdom of God. No. This list is if you practice these things, if you refuse to be humble and repent and admit these things are sin and I want nothing to do with them, then, and here's the warning, you will miss the kingdom of God. That should be terrifying. The warning has been removed from American preaching in the last 25 years or so. Some of that is pressure from without, 
our world will not allow the church, families, or Christian institutions to warn people about sin anymore. They're stopping even allowing you to have that be a part of who you are. Seen that this week, right? Some of this pressure is from within the life of the church. The American church wants to be allowed to live in this list without being troubled or challenged, and so they will not let their pastors warn them. The quickest path to a pink slip from an American congregation is for a pastor to do what Jesus did, what Paul is doing in here, and to say, warning, warning is going to be a part of my preaching and teaching ministry. But I love you, and so I need you to hear this warning. Meditating on this text this week, getting ready to preach to you, I I could barely move when I was thinking on these words. Imagine missing the kingdom of God. Imagine finding yourself on the outside looking in at all of the joy and the peace and the life of the kingdom. Imagine ending up where Jesus warned us about, a place of darkness and fury and regret. I find myself thinking on these words, right, when you get ready to preach or when you read scripture, you just think deeply on phrases and words. And my prayer in my heart became, Jesus, please tell me what it would look like for me, for us, to be trending in this direction, to be veering away from inheritance of the kingdom. Please, I don't want to miss it. And then beautifully, through Paul, the Spirit just, just does just that. He doesn't just drop a warning, but he gives us examples. Okay, we're going to look at the list. It's not an exhaustive list. At the end of the list, he says, and things like these, that's like dot, 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 or uh, etc. He's not listing every possible vice that you could get tangled up in, right? There's not enough papyrus in the Roman Empire to write out all the sins that somebody could commit. What he does here for us is that he emphasizes for Galatian Christians, he's writing to a church, the vices that would spin the church sideways, that would pollute the witness of the gospel in their area, that would have that whole church miss the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying to them, listen to me, Jesus is calling you to holiness and unified holy community. Here's a list of what that does not look like. Here are some things that if you see them, if you do them, if you are a part of them, or if your community gives yourself to them, something is wrong. Okay, what are those things? He organizes it into four subcategories. You type a fridge list, people. Here we go. First, sexual sin. He begins with sexual sin. I think that everybody in here knows that there is no sin that does deeper and faster damage in a life, in a relationship, in a family, or in a church than sexual sin, right? In a horrible, sad way, this facility is an example of that. Uh, Adultery was committed in the life of this church between a pastor who preached right here and someone in the life of the church. And within four or five months, that had such devastating effects 
that the church closed. And some of you are a part of that. We have prayed with you, for you, for the pastor and his family. Serious what sexual sin does in a life and in a community. And so Paul starts right there. And he says, sexual immorality. So that's the bullet list of unmarried sex. Then there's subcategories, right? Fornication, adultery, escorts, prostitutes, the whole nine yards. Impurity. This is unnatural sex. This is homosexual practice, incest, bestiality. All were a part of the Galatian culture. This is sensuality. The old word there is wantonness. It means just the flagrant, nasty, out of control, throwing off of all sexual restraint. Game of Thrones, The Wolf of Wall Street, every Katy Perry music video, the whole pornography industry, that's this right here. Just disregard for the sanctity of the marriage bed. Paul lists this out for us and says, if this is your practice, you will miss the kingdom of God. If you did not know, now you know there is no life in sexual sin. Okay, now he moves on to the religious sins. Idolatry, sorcery. Sounds a little weird to us, but these Galatians had been set free from the worship of idols and occultic practices. And there's this huge temptation for them to have syncretism creep into the life of the church and kind of have Jesus plus their other gods, word and sacrament plus some other religious practices. Paul says, no, idolatry. That's the the worship of gods that are no gods at all. Sorcery. That's where we get the word pharmaceuticals from, the use of drugs or medicines to fake the activity of a God. It says, if you see this, something is wrong. We could probably preach for two months on all the ways that the American church has allowed idolatry and emotional manipulation and faked up, worked up spiritual experiences become a part of the life of the community. Paul says, if you don't know, now you know. I'm giving you the bullet point. Idolatry and sorcery are death to a soul, to a community. If you see them, fight them. Then he moves on to the heart of the list. So, of course, he begins with sexual sin, gives us three. Moves on to religious sin, gives us two. Now he kind of gets stuck here. Ever making a list and you go, oh, 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 and it just gets long? That's this right here. Eight relational sins. I need you to feel this too because the church is good at hammering on sexual sin and hammering on religious sin and then we kind of let this stuff slide with you. Paul will not do it. You wonder how crucial unity is in the life of a church? You wonder how important it is that love animates every single thing that we do together? Paul gets stuck on relational sin. Is very serious about the unity that keeps the church from tearing apart, and he goes, enmity, jealousy, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. You know what these words are, right? Self-centered, self-promoting, 
self-absorbed way of living. This will kill a soul. This will kill a church and her witness. This is why we pray so hard, so often, that God would forge unity in the life of this community. This is why easily, hands down, and you might not know this, but it's true, easily, hands down, the most aggressive rebukes that the elders and the pastors of our church have ever pressed on someone in the life of our church have been around this list, around relational sin, around threatening the unity and the peace in the life of the church. If you didn't know it, now you know. This is not a joke. These sins are on the list that will cause you, us, to miss the kingdom of God. We should want nothing to do with them, nothing. Then he finishes with substance abuse, drunkenness, orgies. Drunkenness is getting wasted alone. Orgies, a better translation here would be like keg parties or like feasts where drunkenness was a part of what was happening, again, in their history as Gentiles. Do you think of substance abuse in this way? As an issue primarily and first of the heart, making itself known on the outside? So we know that there's physical and physiological and hereditary things in play with drug and alcohol abuse. But Paul says what? This goes on the list of works of the flesh. This goes on the list of what happens if a community gives their heart away to other highs other than the Spirit of God. He says, if you didn't know it, now you know there is no life in these practices. They are death to a soul and a community. Many of you have lived through this in your family. You already know. You don't need me to tell you. Imagine what happens to our witness if all of us give ourselves over to this kind of sin. And Paul says, I'm giving you these on the list. That trajectory, there's no life there. None at all. If you didn't know, now you know. You see these things, correct them. Right. That's a heavy list. That's just 15 examples, right? Around a big idea of community life. When you're done reading that list, what happens in your soul? So for me, working through this, it was heavy. And there's a tendency toward despair, right? Right? Did anybody else see words on this list that kind of mark out your life? Mark out your tendencies? I'm like, this. we're in the teens now of things for me that showed up on a 15-item list. Oh, man. Missed the kingdom of God. But Paul will not, will not let you stop with one list. I'm just so glad there's two lists in this text of Scripture. He immediately continues on with another one. After dropping the no good list, he gives us this. But, okay, my elementary school kids laugh at me when I say this in family worship, but but is one of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. It shows up all the time when the inspired writers start listing out for you vices and sins. All of a sudden, this beautiful word, but. You know what but means right there? 
It means I should have nothing more to say to you. Nothing. I should have no more lists for you. No more lists. That should be the only list that applies in your life. Your story should be you driving the car and then wrapping yourself around a tree and missing the kingdom of God. But, but, but the triune God in his grace had different plans for you. And in his grace, he put on his flashing lights, pulled you over to the side of the road, he took you out of the driver's seat, he didn't put you in the passenger seat. He took your broken down life and he laid you sideways and he laid you across the back row and he jumped in the front seat and he said, I'm driving. We're going to holy. We're going to a new destination. We're going to the kingdom of God. Without that but, we're dead. Without that but, every list of every life is those 15 things and worse. But... But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All right, just a couple of things to notice in here, and I hope that you never, ever forget them, because I know this is a familiar text of Scripture. Okay, first of all, notice that although this is a list of eight virtues, the verb is singular. You see that? It is not the fruits of the Spirit are, it is the fruit of the Spirit is. Jonathan Edwards said this about this verse, there is a concatenation of graces in Christianity. So I had to go say, what in the world is a concatenation? Because it sounds awesome and I want to use that word in conversation at the next cocktail party I'm at. Here's what it means. It means a bunch of things all jammed up together. A bunch of things jammed up together. You ever ate a Snickers bar? Caramel, nougats, peanuts, chocolate, it's all in there. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is like. So when you think fruit of the Spirit, don't think apples or apple picking. Have you ever been apple picking? Okay, if you ever date a girl from Massachusetts you will find yourself apple picking in southern New Hampshire somewhere. It's like a rite of passage and courtship in this state. It's just what we do. Here's my advice to see if she really loves you. Just walk her down to Whole Foods, rip one of those plastic bags off and say, here you go, pick all the apples you want. Red, green, they're organic. We want apple picking. Can I go home and watch the game now? Don't think apples... Like you pick one by one and you drop inside of the basket. That's not how the spirit works. Think grapes. Grace's grandmother, Nana Grace, had a, she lived in a tiny apartment with a little backyard, but she put a vineyard back there. You know what I'm talking about? Trellises and, you know, we're doing the Sicily style. So we go back there and if you checked out the vines, you never ever saw one grape growing. It's always bunches of grapes together, a cluster of fruit. That's what this is. So you don't get to say, I'm good at cheerful, but I'm not very patient. And you don't get to say, I'm very gentle, 
but I'm also grumpy. Anyone can naturally have a personality that may intersect with a couple of these things up here. But it is only a life that is surrendered to God the Spirit that evidences all of them together in the same bunch. Hey, the Holy Spirit is at work in this happening when you see all of these things emerging in your life. They go together. They grow like grapes or bananas if you prefer that. But think of a a group of fruit. That's what this is. The fruit of the Spirit is they're all going to be there. Okay, second thing. Notice that he doesn't say the works of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit. I love that. The growth of fruit is what? It is gradual and it is inevitable. It is gradual and inevitable. You don't so much work at bearing fruit as you do just make sure that you stay connected to the vine. When we first started planting Seven Mile Road, uh, for about a year, I went to every Bible study that was happening within 10 miles of the Emerson School in Malden. I was just recruiting anyone I could to be a part of what we were hoping to do together. I went to this one Bible study down here across the street from the library in Melrose. There was this dude with a God's Gym t-shirt on. You know, not Gold's Gym, God's Gym. It was like Jesus pumping. He had this hat with the most giant, like, it was amazing, armor of God. I was like, it's awesome doing a Bible study with this dude. So he was really, as you can imagine, a little bit hyper. And he was like, this week, man, I'm working on patience, working on the patience of the Spirit. That's what I'm going for. And so during this Bible study, I was gently trying to steer the conversation to, that's not how fruit works in our life. What you work hard at is believing the gospel, loving Jesus, loving his word, obeying the commands of scripture, loving his people. As you give yourself to the pursuit of Jesus, you find that the spirit begins to change you and to work patience in you. Instead of of obsessing, I got to do this work of being more patient, stay connected to Christ. I'm going to abide in the vine. And as I do that, the fruit's going to grow. Man, isn't this one of the delights of the Christian life? Seriously? You change. You change. Now, sometimes it goes unnoticed, right? If you go to grandma's backyard and you stare at that vine, you're not going to see the grapes growing. But you do grow the fruit of the Spirit. Be like, you know, a few years ago, I would not have reacted that way. I would have just flipped out, or I would have got really depressed, or I would have just been wicked rude right there. But now, what's going on? My reactions and my actions, they're different. You know why that is? Because you are different The work of the Spirit is to change your character. That's why this is not a list of works. It's a list of virtues. And that leads to a third and final thing. Who is it in Scripture that every one of these beautiful virtues is connected through and is attached to and is mentioned with? Who is it? 
It's Christ. This is a God-centered list. This is who God is. And his work in us is to transform us into the image of Jesus, the Son. In other words, how do you know if you are trending toward the kingdom of God? How do you know? You start to look more like Jesus. You become more conformed to the image of Christ. Love that. And here's the end. He finishes with this. Against these things, against such things, there is no law. Okay, again, the power of Scripture. That phrase should just send you like deliriously happy. The life that the Spirit is working in you, there's no law against those things. Do you know that in the new heaven and the new earth that is coming, there will be no law There will be no laws. There will be no lawyers. There will be no lawsuits. There will be no judges. There will be no speed limits. There will be no prisons. There will be no tags on mattresses. Why? There will be no need of law and rule like that. You know how a holy person does not need you to put a bunch of petty rules on their life? They just instinctively, because of who they've become by God's grace, do what's right. You don't got to tell them what it is and hold them to it. They just do it. That is going to be all of us. Oh man, when you're as bad of a sinner as I am, that is such a delightful truth. We will finally be rid of the sinful nature and its desires. We will one day, all day, all the time, in all situations, forever, bear nothing but the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Check this. No more sexual sin. No more religious sin. No more substance abuse sin. No more relational sin. Just love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Paul gives us this list to drive us to say, I want that. I don't want to miss the kingdom where this is the norm. And so I ask you today, you know, who are we becoming together? Who are you becoming? What's the, the driving record of your life look like? If you are living the sins of the flesh, practicing them on purpose and stubborn, put the car into park and get out. Say, Jesus, please, by your spirit, I surrender to you. I need you to come and drive me in the direction of the kingdom of God. And not just for you individually, right? But for us as a community. If any of those 15 things are anywhere near the life of our church, let's work away from them. And let's give ourselves to believing the gospel in community, on mission, staying hooked to the vine so that the, the, the rhythms and the norms of the kingdom of God would, would mark our life together. 
About 10.15 last night, I was on a dance floor with Grace. She looked amazing. I was with friends. We were celebrating the grace of God in a marriage. All sin, all struggle was like put out of my mind in that moment. The DJ was sweet too, like he'd do two minutes of the song and then he'd scratch it into the next song without missing the beat, like a 45-minute workout. It was heavenly. Why? There was no sin on that dance floor. There was love. There was joy. There was peace. There was gentleness, except this one dude with a beard who kept whacking into me. I don't know if he was saved. For the rest of us, it was gentleness. So I just walked away from this weekend saying the kingdom of God is coming. It's going to be marked by that kind of relational unity. And don't miss that. Don't miss that. If you are practicing sin, stop. Stop. Instead, get connected to Jesus and watch him change you from the inside out. I invite you into that. All right, let's pray together. Father, the gospel is good news. You have not left us to our sins. You've invited us into a holy life. I want to be a part of heaven, and I want to be a part of the kingdom of God that's broken into this fallen world now. I thank you that you have made it clear to us that if we stick with you, you will change who we are, and we will bear fruit, beautiful, holy, Christ-like fruit. I pray that we would give ourselves to that pursuit together, that Jesus' name would be famous and glorious and known. And I thank you for the snapshots of seeing what it's like to be people who live like their God lives, act like their God acts, do what their God does for his glory and for our joy. So come and make that real in this church. And I pray that you invite hundreds and hundreds and hundreds into that with us. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to that.